So as we begin this morning, uh, we have this opportunity to celebrate a season in the church. It's actually the beginning of the church calendar. Uh, and we, we follow Advent as an expectant arrival, right? Advent meaning like the beginning, the start of something, something that, that has come. And so this is a season in the church in which we're expectantly longing and waiting again for Jesus to come. And as a, as a season, what we focus on is the birth, the incarnation, that Jesus came uh, in the flesh as, as human, as man, and entered into our world. And also now as Christians, we long and have this opportunity to step into our waiting of the second coming. And so as Christians, we have this season where we begin the year where we look expectantly at what Jesus has done and, and remind ourselves of that. And we, we enter into this four weeks or so of, of waiting, of preparing, of reminding our hearts that, that Jesus has come into this world. At the same time, we're Americans, right? We have this Christian uh, belief and, and this Christian longing for, for Jesus to arrive and, and to put on flesh and to become man with us. And yet at the same time, we're Americans where we have Christmas season, right? There's this, there's this cultural Christmas season that, that all of us are a part of, right? All of us experience and probably celebrate to one degree or another. Uh, and I'm sure it started for many of you like it did for us. It's, it's music that starts to get played, like right after you leave your family's Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> it's, it's the the candles that you start to light. It's, it's no longer like false scents, but now it's like marshmallows and peppermint. It's, it's decorations that start to sprout up. It's the trees, Right? I mean, my family's been sick this weekend, but normally Saturday, we are like, get a tree, put it in the house, start to get it decorated by Sunday night, we're ready to go, right? Because it's this culture of like starting to get into the mood, get into the season, and so we create this atmosphere around us that gives us those warm feelings. That's part of who we are just as Americans. Of course, there's all kinds of other things that are associated with that culture of Christmas too, aren't there? There's the anxiety and the stress that comes with that too. There's the frustration, uh, the confusion, the, the sales, the finding the right gift for the person that, that you care about the most and want to just show and, and honor and love to and the, then figuring out what to get that cousin that you're not sure you even want to buy a gift for, what they need, right? It, it's all of that wrapped into one and then, and then it's just debt, right? Credit card swipe after credit card swipe after credit card swipe that people will take months or even years to pay back off all in the name of this Christmas season. That's a culture that we live in. And there's this dichotomy, isn't there? Because as Christians, we, we have this Advent season where we're longing and, and we're waiting and we're entering into this, this mode of, of expectantly seeing the, this hope, this peace, this joy that comes into the world through Jesus. And then there's this commercialized, stagnant promise that, that really doesn't deliver in the cultural side. Right, we, we have this dichotomy. And in the midst of that, we have this clash. Right, we, we see this clash because we have uh, uh, Christians even who, who get frustrated when corporations don't embrace the reason for the season. We have this clash in our culture where people are, are questioning and doubting and frustrated about, about what it is that we're celebrating. Are we celebrating commercialism? Are we celebrating peace? Are we celebrating joy? Are we, are we just celebrating the, the snow and, and, and old jazz music? Like, what is the point of all that we're doing? It's this clash in our culture. And yet, as Americans, 
Christmas represents this message of hope. Like we can't get around that. It, in fact, it's so, so attractive that people want that, that every commercial includes it in some way, right? Snow drifts for new cars and, uh, that will never drive in the snow and, and trees on every corner and every like store window or on every website these days, right? Like everything that we have, there's just attraction to having this message of hope. And what happens is we end up with these questions. We end up with these doubts. We end up with these, these concerns about what it is that we're doing here with Christmas. What are we celebrating? And as Christians, when we try to come forward with our response that it's the birth of a savior, there's doubt. And not just out there, sometimes there's doubt in here because when we talk about the birth of a savior, we're talking about something that we're reading in the Bible. And the question is, can we even trust what was written? Right, today as we, we talk about, uh, the question today is that the gospels are just like a game of telephone. You remember telephone, right? Everyone just lines up when you're a little kid and it starts and, and someone one in whispers into the friend of the next year, like, AC has a crush on Lauren. Totally true. Uh, by the way, if you saw my name's AC, Lauren's my wife, just to make that clear. Anyway, back to, right? AC has a crush on Lauren. And it goes down and down and down and down. And it gets to the end and they exclaim what it is. AC sermons are boring. <laughs> totally false and, and ridiculous. Right? That's how telephone works. But are the Bibles like that? Are the gospels like that? Is the Bible written in just this, this word that was kind of shared to one person and then shared to the next? What do we do with that? Can we trust what was written? Well, if you have a Bible, open up to Luke 1, and we're gonna look at Luke's method for writing his gospel today. And we're gonna start to address this question is, can we trust what is written as we think about this Christmas season, as we think about the purpose and the meaning of it all, can we believe what Luke is telling us to believe? And so in Luke 1, I'm gonna start with verse one and read the first four verses. It says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." Luke is really cool in this way because in the first few verses of his gospel, he tells us both his method and his intention for writing. Right? In these first four verses, he gives us like an introduction to what we can understand. And he, and he notes like, O Theophilus, and that's uh, probably capitalized in your Bible. Uh, it's potentially a proper name for someone or like a nickname for someone. But the thing about it is it means God lover, right? Or, or friend of God. And the idea is this, I think, whether that person who, who Luke is writing to is a real person, a specific intended person, it's clear that the audience is for all people who have heard something about Jesus. The audience, and this is true because we continue to pass this writing down generation after generation after generation in the church. Oh, Theophilus, oh, lover of God, I'm writing so that you can hear more about what you've heard, so that you can be confident in what you've been taught. As we think about this, I wanna dive into these verses a little bit more. And I wanna encourage you, uh, you can underline in your Bible, I'm gonna highlight a few words. Uh, they should be highlighted on the screen behind me so you can follow along. Um, also then, if you have like a scripture journal, you can write your notes in there. 
And if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on the shelves. Grab one on your way out. So as we look at this, we want to look at the, the first verse. It says that Luke has undertaken to compile a narrative. Compile. Right? In other words, what Luke is doing when he's writing this is he's taken sources that have been gathered together so that he can review what it is that Jesus has done. He's compiling these sources. He's taking an, an opportunity to look at all of these other accounts, the Gospels. Gospel literally means like a proclamation of good news. You've probably heard the story uh, around the Olympics of the, the marathon runner who, who ran, and to tell, ran back to the town and, and proclaimed victory in battle and then dropped dead because marathons are crazy. Um, right, that, literally the word he would have proclaimed is gospel. Right? Victory. Good news. And it became this word that was associated with this proclamation that people should hear something. Uh, and that's what Luke is trying to do. That's what the gospel writers are trying to do is proclaim this good news that you should hear about who Jesus is in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what Luke is saying is that he's had this good news proclaimed to him and he's seen other uh, accounts that he's been able to compile and put together. He probably already had Mark's gospel to use as reference and other writings and things that he could gather together to, to say, this is what Jesus did. He's not just making this up on his own, right? Luke wasn't, Luke wasn't with Jesus in his ministry, but he's also not just like saying, well, this is what I think he is or who he is or what he's done. This is Luke saying, I have resources. I have all of these things that I can bring together and I can compile them in order to have a clear sense of what Jesus did. He's brought this together in what he's trying to write here in his gospel. He has sources. And so what he's doing now is he's starting to bring these together in order to, to review and, and, and to uh, compile and, and write them, write his gospel in such a way that he can uh, tell us what has been accomplished among us. Accomplished. Luke wants us to remember that these are significant events Right? He's not trying to recount just every little story about Jesus' life. He's not, he's not diving into, well, and then this one time when Jesus was six and, and his mom was upset with him and he, she spanked him. And then this, right, he's diving into significant events in the life and ministry of Jesus. He's trying to recount things that have been accomplished for a purpose and for our understanding of what he did for us. And why that's important is because as we begin to understand what Luke is doing, we recognize the time frame in which he's doing it. See, what we have in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is writings that were written after the ministry of Jesus. We have to acknowledge that as Christians, right? Jesus didn't go around having a scribe around him following him every word that he was saying. He didn't write down a journal and, and have that passed down to Peter when he died and resurrected. Right? What we have is oral tradition. See, Jesus died around AD 30, and Mark probably was written around AD 60. And if Mark was roughly the first gospel written, then that gives us like 30 years of oral tradition. Can we trust that? I mean, as Americans, as 21st century people in general, that doesn't sound very trustworthy, right? And that's where that, that criticism of isn't the gospel just like the game of telephone starts to come into play. Right? Can, we, can we really trust what someone said about Jesus, what he did I mean, we don't have it written down anywhere. We, we don't have video. Like, can we trust what was given to us for over those 30 years? 
So what we have to acknowledge and, and understand about the culture that they lived in is it's different than ours. See, they lived in a more of an oral culture, right? Oral tradition, and, and think about it this way. In De- Deuteronomy 6, you have, uh, hear, O Israel, the, the Lord our God is one. And then in that chapter, it, ru- it runs through all of these normal life circumstances where people are talking about the word of God. When you're waking up and when you go to bed, when you're doing your work and when you're having fun, when you're resting and when you're out in the fields, like all of these things, when you're going into your house, when you're leaving your house, like when you're with your kids, just like as your normal daily life, you're talking about the word of God. And that's this, this incessant, like just speaking through the scriptures. And the reason for that is, is that people couldn't read, right? We have to recognize that we take it for granted, like the literacy rates are much higher now. Think about the things that you do in your life. How important is reading? It's on your phone, it's at your work, it's driving. And if some of you, I know, in fact, a good number of you, English is your second language, and so you've had to learn again how to read in our society, right, in our city. That's a barrier that you've had to overcome because reading is so important to our culture. And yet back then when Luke is writing, reading was much more rare. Certainly there were people that were literate, there were scribes, there were educated, there there were well-educated people, Luke being one of them, uh, and they had written language, but it wasn't the common practice that everyone learned to read. Maybe a few words, but if you look at history, even more recently in the United States, a lot of people couldn't write their own name because literacy wasn't as important until daily life. You didn't need to know how to read a recipe, you just learned how to make the food. You didn't have to look it up on some website. And because of that, you have this oral tradition, right? This, this tradition in which you, you share with your kids and you're sharing with people around you, your loved ones, your family members, your friends, the people in your towns. You're, you're reminding one another when you're worshiping together what God has said. What was written in the scriptures is is what God has said. And so we're reminding ourselves, pouring over it again and again and again, this oral tradition that gets passed down, these stories of what God has done, these stories of, of what it means to be God's people. And we see this even today. There's oral traditions today, and they can remember stories with a remarkable amount of detail within like 15, 20 minutes retelling them the story a few, minutes, a few times over and, and they can repeat it now so that others, other people can hear it from them. Right, that's a different culture than we live in. Everything that we know is like saved on our phones. But that's important because when we start to think about what Jesus has done and what we have in the gospels, it's not that every detail is written out. Right, we don't even have a good description of what Jesus looked like, primarily because he didn't look anything special, right? He just looked like the average Jew in the Middle East of the first century. He, he, he didn't have some type of characteristic that was important to note. But what we do have is amazing stories about what he's done and what he's taught, right? Stories that people continued to, to reference and to tell others and, and continue to recite to one another to remind themselves that this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. This is who we follow. This is who we love. This is who we worship. These stories that they continue to tell over and over and over again for 30 years. 
until we get to the point where the gospel writers start to compile and collect these stories from oral tradition, from, in Luke's case, other people that have written these things down, and they begin to write that in such a way that it's something worth remembering and passing down for generations. And something that Luke is really careful to do, and this is important because of the time that he's, he's writing, in verse two it says, he didn't just compile these things that have been written, but also from the beginning there were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word who've delivered them to us. That is, he's spoken directly with people who saw some of these things. Right, when, when we're talking about being written 30 years after the death of Jesus, we're talking about nearing the end of the generation of people that walked with him. And the early church is well aware of that. And so Luke is seeing this as an opportunity to translate the, the message of Jesus from his generation to the next and to preserve the things that people saw so that we now, almost 2,000 years later, can continue to read what it was like to walk in the footsteps of a disciple following Jesus seeing what they saw, hearing what they heard, questioning the same questions that they had and then understanding the responses that Jesus gave to them. And so Luke took that as an opportunity to, to see from the eyewitnesses themselves what it is that Jesus has done, to compile the writings and to compile these stories and to begin to put them together in his gospel. Now the second question then is, if we can trust what was said, can we trust what they saw? Because the reality is, is that we live in a culture that continues to question everything, and we recognize that research has also shown that maybe eyewitness accounts aren't so great. Right? The reality is, is that maybe you've seen, I saw this like in traffic school. I don't know why I was in traffic school. Maybe I sped, I don't know. But, right, but the, the reality is like, if you have you and I walking down the street to go grab coffee after the service, which we wouldn't do because there's coffee on the table, but um, walking down the street and we see a car speeding by, you might see it as a white car, I might see it as a silver car. Right, two different color cars and, and a cop comes by and asks us, did you see a car speeding by that way? We might describe it a little differently. Maybe you really know cars and you're like, yeah, that was like a white charger. And I'm like, yeah, that was like a silver sedan. Witnesses don't always have the same testimony. And that's why this is important because the reality is, is one, witnesses don't always have the same testimony about those details, but we could both say there was a car speeding by. Two, we're talking about much more significant events than something like that. And three, there's a variety of witnesses that are bearing testimony, bearing witness, affirming what is being written. Right? This is being written at a time when people are still speaking these things and telling these stories and when it's an important opportunity for them to continue to remember what Jesus did and when others are able to refute it. Right? Someone could step back and say, no, Jesus never said that. Jesus never did that. And yet, there's witnesses still there to say, yeah, I saw it. I heard it. This is who Jesus is the disciples, and, and not just the, the 12 who became apostles, like the disciples as in the followers of Jesus that began to gather around him and follow him and hear him and see him. I'm talking about hundreds of people, it, at times even thousands of people witnessing things. And an opportunity now for Luke to record when some of those people are still around. And he says that, he's, he's used them as references to record in his gospels. 
And so he's taken all of this information, right? He's taken all of these things that talk about who Jesus is, that talk about what he's done, that talk about what his disciples asked him and, and, and what the Pharisees confronted him with and, and what ultimately led to his death. And he's brought it together and he's done so in such a way that it should be orderly, right? This isn't a chaotic stream of consciousness. This isn't some assembly of just things that he's heard about who Jesus is and some quick proverbs and, and statements just as long as he, could, he can get it together in some type of list and, and just bind it and get it out so that people have something, right? He's done this in a way that he structured it so we can understand something with purpose and meaning. He's assembled all of these stories from all of these sources and he's brought them together so that he could continue to proclaim the good news of who Jesus is. And he does that in such a way that it provides certainty for the Theophilus. Right, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Right, that you can have confidence to have faith in what it is that Jesus has done for you. Right, that you could believe the gospel. That's what Luke is doing. That's the purpose in what he's writing, right? He's taken all of these sources. He's brought them together. He's had eyewitness accounts. He's had other ministers of the word. He's had all of these things put together and he's written them in such a way that it's orderly, worthy to be written and read in such a way that you might have certainty in what he's claiming. You can have confidence in the gospels. We can trust the gospels, right? We can trust the written word of God. Because Luke is an example of how careful and attentive he was in putting those things together. What's more is as we start to think about transmission, right? Like I said, it starts a long time ago. And yet to get to this point today, can we trust what we have? A telephone question keeps coming back, doesn't it? I mean, wasn't the Bible written in like Hebrew or Greek? This is in English. It's in English behind me. Can we trust that? There's a few things we have to remember about transmission. One, it's written by Christians. Now, that's oftentimes a criticism. It's just written by Christians. They just write whatever they want to hear, but that's not how the Bible is written, right? It's written by Christians who want to devote themselves to what the Bible teaches. And why that's important is because the Bible teaches a lot of sacrifice. The Bible teaches a lot of character change. The Bible teaches a lot of things that cause people to live differently than the world even allows them to. Right? A, a lot of things that, that make a person live differently than their natural desire. Right? It's written by Christians who are calling you to follow Jesus, to, to lay down your life and take up your cross daily. It's written by Christians who are saying that Jesus is the son of God, a monotheistic view of a trinity in which a world of polytheists revolts against. Right? Christians were, were criticized most importantly because they wouldn't believe that the emperor or that some king or that some other person was, was God, but that it was Jesus alone. They were willing to suffer for that. And it's written in the Bible. And they continued to write it down and to write it down over and over again so they could pass down this message from generation to generation meticulously copying, because they had to do it by hand, meticulously copying manuscripts and, and, and parchments and, and papyrus and whatever materials they could find in different regions of the world, such that we have hundreds of fragments, hundreds of, of manuscripts, hundreds of, of all of these things handwritten all over, from all over the world gathered together in particular research areas today. 
because it was important. Because this was the gospel, the good news, the message of who Jesus is. And this was something that the Christians would hang their life on. And they were willing to suffer for it. They were willing to do whatever it took to get it right. right? When, when you're thinking about the idea of, of putting the Bible together, we talk, talk about uh, making and forming the canon, the idea that putting all of these writings together in a single book, right? the Christians were, were clear from the first century and, and the beginning of the second century that there were certain writings that we should include and certain writings we shouldn't. In other words, they knew that it was important to get the right things in there and, and leave out the rest. The, the Bible isn't just some game of telephone. The Bible is a carefully assembled, written word of God. And that's the most important part. That while all of these things from some sort of like research or scientific proof or whatever you wanna look at that, that the important thing is that it has value for us today because it is the written word of God. Second Peter puts it this way. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, we don't just have some eyewitness account recorded. We have the very word of God written down. Second Timothy puts it this way. It says that the scriptures are breathed out by God. It's as if God is speaking to us when we read his word. We can trust the written word of God. And as we think about this in the context of Christmas, as we think about this in the context of the season that we're in, the most important thing is not just that the word is written down for us to read, but as we read it, it points us to the word that has come to us and put on flesh. John 1 writes, this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was a light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Right? Christmas is this reminder that we live in a world of darkness. Right, the lights even representing that on the trees historically. Right, Christmas is this reminder that we have a God who has come to us, who is with us. And John describes that, that God, Jesus, as the word. This isn't some philosophical uh, apparition. Right? This is God, the son of the Trinity, the second person in the Trinity, coming into this world to be God in the flesh with us. This is a miraculous event. And as we think about Advent, we, we get to join in the waiting for the coming of the Messiah, right? A reminder that God is to be with us, that our hearts long for God to be with us, that our hope for eternity is to be with 
him forever and that it is Jesus coming to us, showing us his love, showing us his grace and doing so on the cross and in his resurrection that brings us life because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became human that we might know him and love him because he knows us and loves us. So we could trust God's written word because of what's written, we should follow the word incarnate. We could love him because he loves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. God, we pray that you would encourage us with the confidence to study your word, knowing that whatever sociological or whatever other critical questions come about, Lord, that we can be confident that what we have written is what was written from the beginning. But more importantly, that it is a message from you, God, for others to believe, to have confidence in your message of the gospel, Lord, to have confidence in the life that you've given to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.